please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. If you need to use the Pew Bible in front of you, I believe it's on page 775 or 755. Sometimes I get those numbers mixed up. You know, um, I could insert a lot of the, uh, the jokes about the frozen chosen this morning with the weather that we have. You're it, the frozen chosen. Or I could um, just point out the irony of maybe the timing of this sermon is not quite right when God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. It's going to have a hard time connecting with that particular feeling of Jonah today. But we have... Um, really been on a wild ride with Jonah. You could almost make this a theme park ride. Imagine it. We would be going from a boat that's sinking into the, in a storm to the belly of a great fish. We'd be going from the streets of an enemy city, Nineveh, and now to a booth just outside the city to the east. We've been all over the map in a literal way geographically, but we've also seen Jonah all over the map spiritually. We've seen this prophet of God rebelliously running away from him, from his calling. We've seen him boldly confessing his faith to pagan sailors. We've witnessed him praying in the belly of a fish about God's salvation and praising him. We've seen him shockingly witness revival and reformation that came after he preached a message of repentance and faith. Jonah's journey is mapped out by a sovereign God, just as our journey is mapped out by this same sovereign God. And it's mapped out in a way such as to point him towards faith and obedience. This journey is coming to an abrupt screeching halt, really. And it's a puzzling question that we're left with in the final words of this final chapter of the book. It ends with a question. How did Jonah answer God's final question? Follow along as I read Jonah 3.10 and through chapter 4. When God saw that what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would come of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God had appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, 
do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray together. Lord, we're somewhat puzzled by the abrupt ending to this chapter in the book of Jonah. We know it's not the last chapter of Jonah's life, and so our interest is piqued. Lord, we think of our lives and the lessons you're teaching us, the truths that we are learning, the experiences that you are bringing us through. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to learn and grow. We ask that you would keep working on us, that you would see to completion the work that you began in us. Lord, you're faithful to continue that work. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you would say to us, your children, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're missing Jonah's answer to God's final question. The final question is, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It really feels so wrong to have worked so hard through the book and then not have it resolve. Musically, we love to have a peace resolve. When winter comes and the kids are on break, you'll see in our house usually a card table set up with a puzzle on it. The puzzle is getting put together over hours and hours, days, really, weeks sometimes. And we had such a puzzle yesterday during the storm. It was a big puzzle set up and pieces all over the place, but the box and the box cover guiding you through the assembly of this mixed-up puzzle and you see it starts to take shape. And you start to get satisfaction and, and really have this buildup for I want to see it all get done. I want to see it all get put together. I want to see the final product. Can I be honest with you? I really don't like doing puzzles much. But I love messing with my family. I will grab one of the pieces early on as nobody's looking and I'll slip it in my pocket. And maybe a day or two will go by and they'll be working on it feverishly. And as the pace increases and those last few pieces, you know, one person's grabbing their five pieces, the other's grabbing their six pieces. They're looking for those spots. And for some reason, we want to be the last one to get that last piece to completely finish it. And when they completely finish it, they're like, Dad! Where's the last piece? I'm like, did you check under the table? Maybe it's in the couch cushions, or it could have slid under the refrigerator. Who knows? That I joke with them and play with them. I just, it's kind of twisted of me to like to toy with them that way. I think the author of the book of Jonah is trying to get our attention that way, leaving this unresolved so that the reader would be forced to ask this question. What is the meaning of this? Let's look at how the pieces have come together so far in Jonah. 
to reveal this tense and drama-filled pity party in chapter 4. We see a pitiful prophet. We're going to see God making appointments with that prophet. And we're going to see a pitiful God. Verse 1 says, But it pleased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And his prayer to the Lord is honest. It's just right out there. And he says, Oh Lord, it's not this what I said when I was in my country. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But in so many words, Jonah's saying, you did what I didn't want you to do, and I'm upset about that. The words are, displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. But we read back at the end of chapter 3 that God saw what they did. They repented in sackcloth and ashes. They were sorry for their sin. There was a great revival and reformation that breaks out, and this prophet of God can't take any joy in it. He's got to pout and sulk and be exceedingly displeased with the results. Now, trace back where those results come from. He wasn't just mad at the Ninevites for doing what they did. Who was he ultimately mad at? God. I mean, we're, we're good enough theologians like Jonah to reason that God is sovereign and he's in control of all things. And if something happens in this world, it's because he has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. So when I'm not happy about it, it's ultimately a condemnation of God. It's ultimately pointing my finger at God. Outward success in ministry even won't make up for the inner turmoil of sin in our hearts. I mean, we can see things go successful in our family, in our parenting, in our marriage, in ministry that we have with other people. But in our hearts, we could be just miserable, pitiable, grumbling. We need to be careful not to judge whether we're doing okay by outward success, but really take an inward inventory. Now, a sound profession of doctrine is what we have in Jonah's words. He says, oh Lord, this is what I said when I was in my country. I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger. We already saw how this is quoting already from the Old Testament, what we know is true about God. But this sound profession of doctrine of God's grace doesn't matter if it's not fully embraced experientially. If he doesn't know it and savor it and trust in it for himself as he would for others, if grace isn't amazing him in a real and experiential way, it doesn't matter how good your doctrine is. It doesn't matter how reformed theologically you are. If it's not experienced and lived out, it's useless. As it was for this prophet, he was stuck in his pity because he didn't let his doctrine go into his heart and practice. As a side note, I think we have something to learn about seeing how God deals with people in emotional and even physical turmoil. Displeased, angry people, God has a track record with. Uh, Moses came to God complaining about the people of Israel 
on a number of occasions. The prophet Elijah came to God crying out when he was in despair and having a pity party for himself under a different tree, a broom tree. God deals with us in gracious ways. We see that God engages with someone who's pulled away. He just doesn't leave them to their little booth outside the city. He engages with him. God hears out people telling their complaints, but points them to lament rather than grumbling. It's, it's the same words often, but a whole different attitude. Look at Psalm 73 sometime and see how lament is properly done. What we see here is God asks good questions rather than giving lectures, telling Jonah, now you need to straighten up. You need to get in line. You need to get your attitude right. He doesn't do that. He asks some good, open-ended questions. He asks heart questions, not just tell me your story, tell me all about it. God is not just a, a, a shoulder to cry on. He wants to draw out the heart of his prophet by asking good questions. God's questions expose wrong priorities, exaggerations, our distortion on our thoughts, and he draws them out by making us vocalize them or verbalize them, to say them out loud. And sometimes when the words come out of our mouth or those thoughts run through our head, it has a different effect on us, like, did I just think that about God? Is that what I'm really saying about my attitude towards God? And then God gives time for us to process what's happening and what we should learn about God, about ourselves in a circumstance. He doesn't press, press, press for an answer. He lets that question just kind of soak for a while so that we have time to process it and doesn't, doesn't force the issue. In verses 6 through 8, we see that God made some appointments with this pitiful prophet. Oh, he was in a bad way. Take my life for me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He's angry. He's displeased. So God's question is followed by some appointments that he makes. There's three appointments over the course of the next three verses. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. This word appointed just demonstrates that God's in control. He's sovereign. He rules over the affairs of man so that nothing that happens in this world happens by chance. It happens according to his appointment, his plan. And so this plant that grows up, I did some research on it. What is this plant? Um, some say that it's a, a castor oil plant. Nobody likes castor oil, right? But it's good for you. Maybe that's a good reminder of Jonah got this plant that he learned a message he didn't want to learn. But this plant, probably a leafy plant that has broad leaves that would shade him from the sun. Remember, he, he spent some time in the belly of a fish. It can't do wonderful things for your skin. And so... This plant growing up was something that we read in verse 6. Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now, you may not have a green thumb, and when a plant actually survives for a few weeks, you might be, hey, this is pretty good. But you're probably not exceedingly glad about many things that you grow. 
Jonah took a lot of joy in something as little as this plant, which God was going to use as a lesson to him. But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And then when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And here we are, same phrase again, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah was exceedingly glad, and then boom, he's back down in the pits again. Pity parties don't just go away when things start turning our way. We usually revert right back as soon as things don't go our way again. When adversity comes or some difficulty, I think we learn in this section that my personal comfort and happiness is not God's chief concern. He's gracious enough to, to, yes, care for me physically sometimes and, and minister to me ways, probably ways that I don't even appreciate at the time, but my personal happiness is not his chief concern. God's chief concern is what? That I would glorify him and that I would enjoy him forever. It's not my personal happiness first. In fact, our physical bodies are often something that really consume us, something that we're really fixated on. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8 has helped me to kind of put a little bit of a perspective on this. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Um, Our society is fixated on bodily training, on bodily comfort, a pain-free life. If you're having any measure of pain or discomfort, you got to get that fixed. And God says, well, it's profit to take care of your body. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's, in fact, good to take care of your body. But in comparison to taking care of your soul and the spiritual training that would lead us to godliness, it's second place. God is more concerned about our soul Our bodies are only here for a time. So, what is God doing with all these appointments, all these things? What are they for? What's the lesson? Romans 8, 28 and 29, you've heard it before. All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. According to His purpose. Don't ever leave that verse without moving on to verse 29 and see... What are the all things here working together for? It's for his purpose, which is for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The purpose of these trials and suffering, these difficulties, was to shape Christ's likeness into his prophet. He wants to shape us in our souls. He doesn't change our experience all the time because he wants us to grow and change. His glory is his chief concern. But we see that God is relentless here. Yes, he asked the question. Jonah's by himself to think over that question for a while. But then he starts bringing these circumstances into his life, both to take him up and also then to bring him down. 
He sends plants into our lives. He sends worms into our lives. He sends scorching winds. And I don't know what season you're in right now. Maybe you've got a plant and you're all happy about that. Maybe there's been a worm and that suddenly came to an end. Maybe you're in the scorching wind that's been blowing for quite a while and it is not comfortable. Wherever you're at in that, God hasn't abandoned you. God has not left you. In fact, God's grace is being poured out on you. You continue to receive God's grace in the midst of these circumstances. Paul Tripp calls this a theology of uncomfortable grace. You've probably heard me talk about it before. It's not the grace of release from my problems or relief from my problems. Those are primarily yet to come. But this uncomfortable grace that we receive even now in the midst of discomfort and trials and hurts and pains is God's grace. He puts it this way, God, where, God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to work in you what you wouldn't otherwise do on your own. What you couldn't achieve on your own, God's going to take you to a place so he can work on you and work into you Christ-likeness, conform you to the image of his son. That's gracious of God to do in us. And he is relentless in doing that. We move from a pitiful prophet who has a God making many appointments in his life to get an eye now on the God who is at work, the God who is sending these plants and worms and winds. He is a pitiful God. A God who is full of pity and compassion and grace. And now, you know, if you're like me, you probably don't like to be the object of somebody's pity. But I want you to read this in these terms of of compassion, of grace, of steadfast love. That's the kind of pity that we see with our God. Someone who deserves his wrath and curse gets his grace and mercy. We cry out sometimes, why me, God? Or why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. There is no one righteous, no, not one. So there's no good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Oh, but once a bad thing did happen to a good person, and there was only one person who was righteous, and he went to the cross, not for his own sin, but for ours. The bad thing that happened to him should have happened to us, but graciously it became the means by which our sins are forgiven, by which we can have peace with the Father. God said to Jonah in verse 9, do you, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? It's the same question, but he adds on a little bit of the plant. He wants to get back to his sermon illustration for Jonah. He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Hmm. Now God says he's soaked long enough. He's stewed long enough on this question. He has brought, God has brought this prophet's attention to his providence, to God's providence and appointments in his life. The Lord says, yeah, that plant, you pitied that plant. We got some pity out of you, Jonah, beyond just yourself. And we've only moved a matter of probably inches 
at most a foot away from this prophet to get to the plant. But at least it's a little bit outside of himself. And he's thinking of something other than himself because that's where that pity is, is really grounded in, selfishness and self-absorption. And God says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Fleeting things we take such pleasure in. God points that out kind of in a passing way. But then he brings back the pity question in verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh? Jonah, you can pity things besides yourself. You pity that plant. Jonah, why can't I pity things? Can't I pity Nineveh? I mean, you pity the plant, but I'm pitying Nineveh, that great city. There's more than 120,000 persons there who don't know their right from their left and also much cattle. Question mark. What kind of way is that to end the book? He's saying to Jonah, I need to point out your inconsistencies. I need to show you where your, your words and your thoughts don't match up with my words and thoughts. If Jonah, you pity the plant, shouldn't God pity cattle? Oh, humans, they're made in God's image, so you should pity them even more. So a, a, a plant is just a plant when compared to an animal. You'd probably go into a, fire, a burning house to rescue your animals before you rescue your plants. Let's be honest. Wouldn't you? But if there was a human being in your house that needed rescue, you'd forget the plant and the pet and you'd go to rescue that person. That's what God is trying to speak to Jonah. God shows mercy wherever he wants. In Exodus 33, God says to Moses, well, Moses asked God, please show me your glory. And this is God's answer to showing Moses his glory. He said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses, you want to know me? You want to know my character? You want to know what I'm all about? This is my name, and this is what I do. I'm gracious. I'm full of mercy. That's all well and good when it's people I want to receive grace and mercy. But when you give it to somebody that I don't think deserves it, I got a problem. And, and Jesus saw that problem with the Pharisees around him and the mentality that they had so that in Matthew 20, he tells a parable of workers in a vineyard and the master who makes an agreement before the workers go out, I'll pay you a denarius for a day's work. And he sends those workers out at the beginning of the day, but there's others who need work, so he gives them work during the middle of the day and even up to the last hour of the day. They work and come to get paid. When they all gather to get paid, they all get paid the very same amount, one denarius. And we read the disgust, the anger, the displeasure of those workers who were there all day laboring. And the master says to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. 
am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? It's curious, after this parable, there's no response from the Pharisees either. Jesus' parable ends on a question mark. Do you begrudge my generosity? God asks probing questions, then crickets. No response. We love when there's a storybook ending. We love it when a plan comes together. But that's not what we get with Jonah. Where's the missing puzzle piece, Nathan? I know you got it. Where is it? I got to know. Well, we're left wondering, what is Jonah's answer to God's question? We're left without a record of Jonah's answer to God. I'm persuaded that the book of Jonah never intended to answer the question for Jonah. In the end, it was written to reveal the heart of the reader. You. Me. Where is your heart today? Have you been in a place where you've been frustrated and disappointed with God and His dealings with you in your life? Have you been conducting maybe a full-out temper tantrum pity party? Or maybe just a simmering, low-key grumble session? Has God made many appointments in your life that you've been ignoring, writing off, pushing down the road? Will you keep denying God's providence or His discipline in your life? Or will you acknowledge that it points you to get your eyes off yourself and onto Christ and His kingdom purposes for you? Do you have a deep desire for God to save all kinds of people all over the world? Do you want God to judge the wicked instead of giving them faith and repentance? Put it this way, is there some group of people or some person that you don't want to share heaven with? That it wouldn't be heaven because they're there. What's the answer to all these questions? These heart questions that we're posed with. The answer to all these questions and problems can be found by repenting of our pity party today and running to and resting in the amazing grace, the steadfast love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, life and the experience of life is often quite a roller coaster for us and we struggle at times to make sense of what you're doing, how we're feeling, what's going on. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us some clarity. While not giving us the peace of understanding, you've given us a peace that surpasses understanding. You haven't answered all the whys and wherefores, but you've answered our deepest concerns in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for your marvelous grace to us sinners who would rather wallow in our pity. You rescue us by pointing us to our Savior. Thank you for doing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hymn of response this morning is number 713, Great King of Nations, hear our prayer. We'll stand and sing verses 1 through 4 as the elders prepare the table for communion.